0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen
1: to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Here's a topic we'll cover on the show today, and that's should the parents of bullies pay the price for their kids? A Wisconsin city is considering fining parents if their kids are bullies. Now, think about that. If your kid has ever been bullied in school... Of course, you know, you look at the parent and say, come on, your kid is bullying my kid. Uh, you better deal with that. But do you deal with it with a financial penalty? You fine the parent if their kids are bullies. Do you think that's a good way to deal with this problem in our schools? So here's the hot question of the day. Wisconsin City, considering fines for parents whose children are bullies, is this a good way to deal with, with the problem of bullying in schools, find the parents of the bullies. Would you say yes, no, or maybe you're not sure about it? You can have that option on the poll as well. Now, here's how you vote on this today at CKNW on Twitter. You will find the hot question of the day at CKNW on Twitter. Please follow me while you are there. Mike Smith News on Twitter, S M Y T H at Mike Smith News on twitter also call me on the buzz line on this today and tell me what you think about it should the parents of bullies be fined by schools or by local municipalities call me at 604-331-BUZZ leave me a voicemail there we may play it later on the show 604-331-2899 veterans boycott of the city of victoria after the city executed that cheap shot At Veterans last week on D-Day, asking Veterans Affairs Canada to pay for Remembrance Day services in the city to save taxpayers money. This is after they uh, enjoyed their taxpayer finance catered lunch, of course, in the council chambers. They spent $10,000 on catered lunches for city councillors in Victoria, but they can't afford to pay for Remembrance Day services. I encourage you to check out my column today in the Vancouver Province Newspaper about the veterans who are upset about this can't blame them one bit saying they now plan to boycott the city as a result let me introduce you now to john appler he's uh, served eight years in the uh canadian royal canadian navy he was on hmcs terranova was shipped out to vietnam in the 1970s john thank you for coming on oh you're welcome michael Hey, John, let me tell ask real quickly about your service in the, in the Navy. I mean, you got an amazing story there about how in the, in the 70s you got shipped out to Nam. Tell me about that. How did that happen? Uh,
2: well, we actually were shipped out. To, we had to be within 36 hours sailing of Saigon or other South Vietnamese ports. We were there as an emergency withdrawal means for the Canadian soldiers who were a part of the International Commission of Control and Supervision, which was a, as a result of the Paris peace talks.
1: They are peacekeepers.
2: They were basically peacekeepers, yeah. observers. Uh, I, we, we were there uh, sort of as a, a final means for them to get out if they need to. If they wow. couldn't be flown out, we wouldn't go in.
1: Wow, that's, a, that's amazing. You had an incredible run in, in the Navy there, John. Let's talk about what the city of Victoria did last week. I want to play something here for you. This is Victoria City Councillor Ben Isett. This is the guy who moved this motion asking Veterans Affairs to pay for Remembrance Day. Here he is. It's basically that council directs staff uh, to engage DND slash Veterans Affairs Canada officials, to seek to recover costs associated with military events in the city and i think the overall context for this is our taxpayers who are relatively low income compared to other regional taxpayers are taking a huge amount of regional responsibilities and i think it is appropriate for council to try to limit uh, the financial impact on taxpayers of these regional services as well as uh, the regional services we were just discussing with the last item around sports fields okay okay john what he refers to there as military events includes remembrance day which to me is not a military event that's a civilian event it's a community event why are you guys upset about this
2: it it's just uh, i was in hospital i was in a hospital ward bed And on Thursday evening, and I heard um, the mayor of Port Coquitlam discussing this matter and that. And it was on the Charles Adler show. And I I couldn't believe what I was hearing, that it was the 75th anniversary of D-Day when 359 Canadians sacrificed their lives on that day. And 75 years later... The Council decides that Remembrance Day is a military event. It is not a military event, never has been it's a day of remembrance it 's not a day to remember the uh, serving members it's the day to remember those who served before and a lot in a lot of cases have passed on and that, the, It was a complete insult to all of us and when uh, I got out of hospital on Sunday. I talked to a couple of my fellow shipmates. We're a fairly close group, and uh, I said, you know, we got to do something about about this. We can't we can't stand by and let let this go on. And we know it's one the person leading it is one man with an ideological bent that he he doesn't like the military. He's anti military, but the vote at the time was six to three, so that means there were five other councillors who. Either we're complacent in their duties, and that, or uh, fall along his lines. Right. We've got to. We decided to take a stand. Now we've been having reunions. Uh, we've had two, two in Victoria, 40th and a 45th last year, and that, and we had a great time. The city of Victoria is fantastic, right, for a, a venue for this sort of event. Right. We had great hotels. We had the Legion on Gorge Road, the Trafalgar Propatia Legion. They ho- hosted us. We had a ball. We, we really, really appreciate what was done for us. But then, on the other hand, yes, we would love to be able to do our 50th reunion there and other reunions and that. But we just can't with a city that seems to be bent. On disrespecting its veterans and serving military and the the families of these of the veterans, Uh, we lost one ship member during our cruise in '73, and that, and we still are in contact with his wife and daughter, and they're a part of our Terra Nova family. I'm in contact with approximately 90 past. Nova crew that were on that, that particular operation and I have not heard one of them state no we don't want a boycott everybody seems to be solidly and firmly in belief that hey it's it, if it's a financial matter well then it's a financial matter so we'll take our financial the taxes they might be getting from the restaurants, hotels and that we'll right. move it to another municipality A municipalities like Esquimalt, Langford Sydney, Saanich they're much more appreciative it appears to us of veterans
1: that that uh, shipmate that you mentioned john who lost his life on that that mission in the south pacific i, I remember i was very moved by your story about him his his name is corporal ted memnook ned ned memnook ned ned memnook he contracted viral pneumonia on that vietnam mission and he died in a hospital in singapore and I know that really shook you guys up, and it still does. And I, I guess that's, you know, when you when you get a cheap shot from a, a city council like this, that's got to make it hurt even more, knowing that some of your own shipmates laid their own lives down.
2: It, that and the fact that the mere date of the day,
3: yeah. they,
2: they would pass that motion. Well, the rest of the country was remembering the sacrifices from 75 years ago victoria decided yeah we're going to remember them too by charging them because all the money veterans affairs canada they're basically it's it's a tooth and nail fight with them to get anything nowadays and that's so money that if they want to charge charge them it, it just does make completely no sense at all to us um I, uh, I, from what I understand, there, there may be a motion coming up today in council, in the Victoria City Council to rescind last week's motion, and that for us, they can do that whatever they want, but the, the damage has been done. It's, it's too late. They can issue all the apologies they want. I speak of, on behalf of my fellow shipmates and that, and I think probably to a man and family we would all say, let's continue the boycott. And that We've been insulted, we've been disgraced, we've been disrespected. And I just find it incomprehensible that, A, one person with an ideological bent, that there were five others who went with him on it. To me, that's mind-boggling. That, that to me, is, is, it is, it's just mind-boggling.
1: John, I'm very grateful to you for coming on the show today. I support you 100. I'm I'm really glad that you're speaking out, and I think you're doing the right thing. I hope the city comes to its senses and reverses that motion at this city council meeting today. I got a fig. I got a feeling they they just may do that. Thank you for your service to Canada, and thank you for coming on the show today.
2: Well, thank you very much, Mike, and also thank you for the great article. It really gives uh, gave the. Uh, what we wanted said was, was stated. Thank you again.
1: That was, my, that was my pleasure. Thank you, John. That is John Appler. He's a retired Navy veteran. He was part of a deployment on the battleship HMCS Nova in the 1970s. They went, they went to Vietnam to protect Canadian peacekeepers over there. One of his shipmates died on that mission. They are leading a boycott now of the city of Victoria over that motion last week by the city to ask Veterans Affairs to pay for Remembrance Day services in the city to save money for the city of Victoria. All right, let's talk about negotiations with the BC Teachers Union now. Earlier in the week, I spoke to Glenn Hansman, the president of the BC Teachers Federation. He talked about the union's frustration in trying to get a deal here. The current contract with the Teachers Union expires at the end of the month. Are we heading back to the barricades here in a fight between the government and and the teachers union let's get the other side of it now with my guest renzo del negro he is the ceo of the bc Pub- public school employers association he's the lead negotiator for the employer renzo thanks for coming on thanks for having me mike okay what is the current status of the talks right now the the current contract ends on june 30th right are you guys still at the table talking
4: We are still at the table. We have had approximately 50 days uh, at the table as of yesterday, uh, and we continue to have dates right through to the end of June. Why are talks going so poorly? I think it's not that they're going poorly. I think there are various issues that both uh, sides want to deal with, but we're we're having trouble getting acknowledgement that the collective agreement belongs to both parties and that the collective agreement has to satisfy the interests of both parties. We're we're getting a little stuck on that.
1: You have a negotiating mandate from the government, right, that includes a 2% raise each year in a three-year contract that's what a lot of the other public sector unions have settled for Uh, is that correct that you guys have got been told by the government to get a deal along that mandate right
4: yes we we have the same mandate that the other public sector unions had and it is one of the largest mandates we've had in the last 20 years outside of the one from 2006 to 10 this is the largest that we've we've had
1: Okay, I want to play a couple of clips for you, Renzo, of what the President of the Union said to me earlier in the week, Len Hansman. Here is Hansman here talking about how shocked and surprised they were that the government's playing hardball in these talks. Have a listen.
0: We're shocked and surprised given the high profile of our case and the fact that the restoration of teachers' class size language was what triggered the restoration of about 3,700 teaching jobs around the province. And so why a government, any government, would be trying to go after that very same language when we already had that experience between 2002 and 2016 without it. And we saw how reduced services were to kids across the province. And we saw what the benefit was over the past two school years of having that language back. And so that's the surprise.
1: Okay, Renzo, he says that they fought all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and won when the previous Liberal government scrapped their, rolled back their contract. Now he says you guys are trying to roll it back again.
4: Yeah, I think there's a bit of a misconception there. What the Supreme Court determined is that they had the right to bargain the language, and they weren't going to rule on, on the merits of the language and that it needed to be bargained. We had a two-year consultation process with our members, and what they told us was that the language doesn't work. They spend more time trying to get the language to work or to be in compliance with it than they do focused on providing supports to students. And they find it discouraging and, are, and a bit disheartened that it's come down to this. Uh, the language was requ- the, was input put back, required uh government to fund additional resources so that it didn't create the disruption that it would have created had districts had to reconfigure to meet the language. Uh, so... In, in our view, okay. it's a bit uh, disingenuous to suggest that the language is what provides services to the system. Districts that did not have language continued to provide service. They just, in some ways, we say they were able to be more responsive because they were able to meet the needs of both students and teachers because they could direct the resources where they needed to and not where they're forced to by the agreement.
1: Okay. Can you boil it down into some understandable language for, for people out there so they can understand what the issues are? Let's say parents who got kids in the system. Like you heard the, the union president there talk about class size. Are, is the employer looking for larger class size? Is that what the, the stumbling block is here?
4: Uh, it seems to be a stumbling block over miscommunication because we are not seeking larger class sizes. What we are seeking is the employer and the local parties being able to sit down and determine where best to put those resources. The proposal that we put on the table was not read in its totality. It did have class sizes that were more akin to the School Act, but it also included a fund where the local parties could determine if they wanted to lower their class sizes or provide alternate supports based on the needs of the students in their community so it was not quite accurately described. Class sizes Mm -hmm. currently sit as low as they ever have and there's no intention to, to increase them and there's no intention to remove any resources from the system in terms of what are currently being used to hire teachers.
1: Okay. I'm speaking to Renzo Del Negro. He's the chief negotiator for the government side here in these uh, stalled contract talks with, with the teachers union. Renzo, let me play another clip for you from Glenn Hansman, the president of the union. You'll hear him here say, make some uh, demands on, on your side that he says basically you got to take everything off the table that you've put on the table and essentially start over. Have a listen.
0: Teachers certainly aren't in a position where we're going to be willing to accept something that's worse than what we currently have. And so, you know, really the pressure is on government to yank its proposals off the table and have a more respectful conversation around how we could identify gaps that are in the system, fill some of those holes without taking away direct supports from kids in any school district.
1: Renzo, what do you say to him?
4: I say it's a curious statement because the whole purpose of bargaining is to have a discussion around each other's proposals and why they've put them there. By virtue of the fact that he's suggesting that we have to take our proposals off the table, he suggested they're not interested in the employer's issues at the table, and that's a bit disconcerting for us. Uh, with respect to the gaps that he mentioned, I think they're perpetuating the myth that services are tied to collective agreement language. Collective agreements are terms and conditions of employment, and they provide minimum. Boards of education go beyond those minimums, and where they don't, it's because that's not where their priority service areas are.
1: How much would the teachers' unions' demands cost? Like, if you guys gave everything the unions' asking for, how much would it cost?
4: Well, we've estimated that their, their proposals would require approximately uh, 30% more teachers, and uh, not even including the space that would be required for that. We've estimated that it would be around a billion dollars.
1: <laughs> a billion dollars my goodness well at 30 percent we have a
4: workforce of almost 30,000 plus between 30 and 40,000 30 percent more at a total compensation of 100,000 to hire a teacher it gets uh, it gets up there
1: okay bottom line here is are we heading for a strike what's going on here
4: you know, I think it's always premature to use the word strike. I mean, it's June. we're coming up on June 30th. We have the summer. BCPC is a 12-month operation. We're prepared to work through the summer. Uh, you know, even if we don't have a contract by the fall, nothing prevents the parties from continuing to work on this. As long as the parties start to acknowledge that there's, uh, there's issues that need to be resolved for both parties, I think we can get there without any, without any service interruption.
1: Renzo, thank you for coming on.
4: Okay, thank you, Mike.
1: All right, this Renzo Del Negro. He's the lead negotiator for the government side in these teacher talks. I don't know. This sounds like these talks not going well. Okay, let's talk about money laundering in our province now. A couple of key federal cabinet ministers in town today talking about the issue, including Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who said the RCMP will be getting an additional $10 million on that file uh, let's check in now with david eby the attorney general of british columbia uh minister thank you for coming on thanks
5: for having me mike
1: okay you met with morneau and also with bill blair another cabin federal cabinet minister today is that correct
5: that's right as well as uh with provincial colleagues from across canada every province was represented around the
1: table okay can you tell me what you guys uh, discussed on the money laundering file
5: yeah, the, uh, the core of the discussion was a chance for each uh, province and territory to weigh in on what they're seeing and what initiatives they're taking to address money laundering uh, in their provinces. There was a commitment in 2017, for example, that all provinces would make sure that the uh, true owners of companies, of provincial companies, that they would be uh, declared and they would be kept with the minute books of companies and that there wouldn't be something called bearer shares, which are shares that can, if you just hold it, it shows that you own the property, you don't have to register who's actually holding it, uh, that those would be eliminated. And so a number of provinces have taken those steps, including British Columbia. And so it was a progress report on things like that. It was also a chance, really, for British Columbia to, again, press our case for the feds to put some resources into enforcement here, whether it's Revenue Canada doing lifestyle audits of uh, the million-dollar home buyers living on poverty incomes, or whether it's a crackdown on money laundering from... uh, from uh, officers funded within uh, the RCMP or within municipal and, and provincial police. Uh, uh, we were really pushing our case today.
1: Okay, Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau saying today the RCMP will get an extra $10 million. This is in addition to about $160 million that was set aside in the federal budget on, on this file around money laundering. Is that an adequate amount of money? I mean, $10 million maybe sounds good, but relatively is is that going to be make any kind of difference
5: well so I I just heard about the announcement this morning and I haven't seen all the full details but I understand Mm -hmm. it relates to uh, increased IT resources for the RCMP uh, computer-based information sharing resources Um, and and if the RCMP is identifying that they need those resources and the feds are funding it I think that's good that seems like a basic thing to have happen But as we know here in British Columbia, the issue is that there's nobody to sit and look at the computer Uh, and you can increase sharing of information. But who are you going to share it with when there's no dedicated federal anti-money laundering police officers operating in the province? So um, I I tried to underline that to to the ministers that uh, that increased information sharing from FinTrack, the anti-money laundering agency or or more IT resources or uh, this kind of thing is really missing the point of needing the police officers.
1: Yeah, this goes back to some, one of those earlier reports from Peter German, the, the former RCMP deputy commissioner you brought in there on the money laundering file, and that's one that really surprised a lot of people, that this is such an apparently large problem in our province with a lot of concern about it, but there were no dedicated RCMP officers on it. So when you brought that up with Morneau and also with Bill Blair, another key cabinet, federal cabinet point person there, what, what is their response on that? I mean, I guess you did you make the point? Look, we want more RCMP personnel on this.
5: Well, I think it was really important uh, that it was Minister Blair and Minister Morneau, uh, that the public safety minister wasn't the only person at the table, that the finance minister was there. And this is now considered an issue of importance to the finance ministry of the government, government of Canada because it goes to confidence in our economy nationally and how we are seen internationally by other uh, countries that are trying to crack down on crime in their own jurisdictions. What's Canada doing? Why are they not uh, acting on this? So the fact that he was at the table was, was a good sign, first of all. And then the things that they were saying were also a good sign. Uh, both uh, Minister Blair and Minister Morneau said, look, you know, we understand we've got lots more to do here. Uh, keep coming after us for this money. Uh, keep letting us know. And, uh, and, and we, we can make more resources available. And so uh, that's a hopeful message. We put a specific proposal to them for, uh, for policing in the province. Uh, and one of the things the province can offer the federal government is when they spend the money on, on this, that it will actually go to British Columbia, to the target areas, as opposed to dumping it into the top of the federal RCMP and who knows where it's going to end up.
1: Speaking to B.C. Attorney General David Eby here about about money laundering and some critical meetings happening today with the uh, federal counterparts and other provincial officials as, as well today. Uh, this all goes back largely to one of the big wake-up calls that we had on this file and that was the collapse of the e-pirate uh, charges and the investigation there. The RCMP investigated for years on a, an alleged money laundering operation going on in Richmond. There was a lot of there are years put in of, of effort put in on this case and then we all watched it unravel and fall apart before our eyes last november i remember how how surprised you were at that do you get the any kind of sense that your federal counterparts here whether it's whether it's bill blair and law enforcement or the finance minister that they're equally disturbed by that
5: yeah uh, the uh minister blair mentioned it a couple times uh today and um, he uh, shared my concern when that, uh, when that fell apart, uh, I believe. And uh, one of the reasons I believe that is because in the Budget Implementation Act federally, they put in a new provision around uh, the criminal code related to money laundering. So you don't have to actually prove that the person uh, specifically knew that the money came from crime. Uh, it, it's enough that a person is reckless about whether or not they're money laundering. Uh, they could potentially be convicted. Um, it's my hope that that, uh, changed, which means that if you're walking around with a duffel bag of cash for your buddy and you just didn't ask him, Hey, where did this cash come from? And and you're reckless about the fact that you're laundering money for this person. Uh, that you can still be criminally convicted should make uh, prosecutions a lot easier, provided that there are police and prosecutors to actually take this on. And, and so uh, yeah. with the laws shifting a little bit in that respect, um, it's an indication to me that they saw what happened there and they wanted to make it a little bit more clear what the criminal conduct is, which is, uh, which is being reckless right. about, uh, about processing money for criminals.
1: Just got 30 seconds here. Do you continue to be confident the feds will cooperate here in your public inquiry into money laundering?
5: Uh, yeah, I'm hopeful uh, that they will be uh, cooperative. Uh, they've given every indication that they will be. They understand that this is a critically important issue for British Columbia, and I know the federal government, as well as all political parties, want to win a few seats here in BC, so uh, I don't see any reason why uh, that would shift.
1: Thanks for coming on.
5: Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. David Eby, he is the Attorney General of BC and some high powered meetings there. A tomorrow is being held as. Tax Freedom Day by the Fraser Institute think tank. Maybe you've heard of this today. This is the annual declaration of Tax Freedom Day. So what that means is if you add up all the taxes that you've paid throughout the year, basically they say that all the money you've made up until now is how much you've had to pay the tax man for your tax bill. And for the remainder of the year, that's when you get to keep your whole paycheck. So this is Tax Freedom Day tomorrow. Let's talk about this now with Finn Poshman. He's a resident scholar at the Fraser Institute. Hi, Finn. Thanks for coming on.
6: Hi. Great to talk to you, Mike.
1: Appreciate it. Toby Sanger. Have I got that right, Toby Sanger.
6: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great to uh, join you, uh, Mike.
1: Thank you, Toby. Toby is Executive Director of the Canadians for Tax Fairness Organization. Finn, let me go to you first. Okay, tell me about Tax Freedom Day. Did I get that right in my description? You, what is Tax Freedom Day?
7: Oh, Mike, you absolutely nailed it.
3: Oh,
1: good. Uh, okay.
7: Go, go through, uh, uh, or, you know, it's a bit of a finicky calculation, but uh, you do your best to add up right how much federal and provincial income taxes we pay That's personal income taxes. Uh, sales taxes, uh, both uh, federal and provincial, so that's uh, the GST or HST in some provinces, the retail sales tax in other provinces, and then how much you pay pay by way of um, other uh, uh, payroll taxes that uh, that come attached to your employment and uh, you run through a, a pretty straightforward calculation from there and figure out for a ha- average typical or a representative family uh, what percentage that is of your year's income and that tells you how much of the year you've been working for government and uh, effectively and uh, how much for the rest of the year you have okay. to uh, take home some money
1: okay so june fourteenth tax freedom day how does that stack up in previous years Is that about the oh usual well
7: time? there's there's good news is yeah. that it's a, it's a day earlier than last year uh, uh, the bad news is that it's a couple of days later than uh, just in uh, 2015. So, uh, so it's a little bit of uh, ratcheting up of uh, how much tax we're paying over the course of okay, the let's... year and over the
1: course of the past few years. Okay, let's go to Toby Sanger. Saying, uh, Toby, what do you think of this Tax Freedom Day?
6: Well, it's it's really not a credible uh, calculation at all. It's a, it's a media stunt by the Fraser Institute uh, it, that I think with anybody who looks into it, it could, uh, with any credit credibility sees it as a bit of a joke. So it's got serious methodological flaws. They include corporate income taxes and resource revi- royalties as part of a household's taxes without including a bunch, those Kobe corporate it's a feature. Yeah, well, Hang on, without, hang on. He, let, him,
1: let him finish. With, Go ahead, Toby.
6: Without including those revenues as part of income. So it makes no mathematical sense. I mean, I think that would be marked as a failure in any econ or accounting 101 class. Uh, and then they also just look at one side of the balance sheet income statement, right? I mean, there's uh, they, they just look at the taxes that are paid without looking at the services that the households get in return. So it makes no sense. I mean, no business or family would look at their expenses without looking at what they get in return. I mean, coins have got two sides. Uh, Canadians realize they pay taxes and get public services in, in return. I mean, it was interesting. Yeah. saw so a little bit of a Twitter thing about, uh, I, I I forgot who it was, that, you know, something about cutting taxes. People said, well, you know what? I just spent, uh, you know, a few days in the hospital and uh, I didn't have to pay anything, right? So our kids get quality elementary and secondary education instead of, instead of Spain twenty thousand dollars a year we get lower cost university education in the u.s uh public health care roads and things like that so 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 the list goes on um in fact uh the average candidate okay let me just just go back to
1: finn there because okay basically saying you get what you pay for so yeah i mean people might think taxes are high but we got good quality services too what do you say to that finn
7: Oh, absolutely, uh, and uh, these, uh, the, the best way to handle that, I think, or respond, is uh, uh, to refer to what we wrote in the paper. It's, we absolutely are not attempting to measure the benefits that Canadians receive from governments. It's the price that we're paying. So uh, the quality of what we receive by way of services, or uh, products from government, how much of it we get, uh, whether we get our money's worth, uh, The uh, what we've written in, in these words are, these are questions only each of us can answer for ourselves. So it's a, it's a fair comparison that all of us have to make, all of us have to think about for ourselves. Uh, what we're saying is, here's how much we pay over the course of the year. And okay. that, of course, includes uh, what uh, what we pay uh, by by way of our businesses.
1: Okay, so when you include corporate taxes and resource royalties, as Toby Sanger said there, how is that a fair way to total up an individual's tax burden?
7: Well, corporations are very well-functioning corporate fictions or uh, uh, legal fictions. Uh, so we we have a, a good legal system in that sense. Uh, but corporations don't pay taxes. Uh, the uh, the shareholders of corporations, which means all of us through our savings account, through our pensions, uh, including uh, public service pensions, uh, that uh, that hold corporate shares, uh, we pay for it in the prices of goods that uh, and right. services that we buy from our local businesses and uh, we uh, we get a notch out of our wages to uh, that uh, covers uh, the corporation uh, tax bill. So all all the money is coming from the same place.
6: So what what do you, what do you uh, say to
1: that? Is that re- fair? Well, well,
6: well, well there's, there's a lot of debate over that. The Congress US Congressional Budget Office I think that their their view is that about 80% of uh, of, uh, of the corporate taxes go to the shareholders and yes uh, I mean, some of that might be pension funds, but in the case of uh, most of these, it's concentrated at the top, uh, or tends to be concentrated at the top. And then there's resource revenues. I mean, those, a lot of those companies are foreign-owned. Uh, just to get back to the to the to the value of public services, there was a yeah. study done about a decade ago, and they calculated the value of public services that families and different income groups got from public services. And they found that it amounted to about seventeen thousand per person which worked out to about 60% of the cap of their per capita income. So if you calculate a day that goes with the value of public services, it would be around August 8th. So in a way,
7: mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> the argument is, yeah, you might no. pay taxes to this uh, to this time, but you get the value of the public services that you receive goes to about August 8th. Oh, now, okay, I a so lot we're, of getting, we're getting Canadian, a good deal
1: then. <laughs> yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of the argument there. And uh, in fact, uh, there's been a lot of news about the pharmacare program and uh, Eric uh, Hoskins came out with this uh, report, said that okay. if you had a public pharmacare program, it would save um, uh, many billions of dollars a year, because you'd be able to, to negotiate a lower program. So that's okay. an example of a public program that can save money.
1: Well, let me like go back. Let, let me yeah. go back to Finn then. Finn, what are you complaining about then? I mean, if we have tax-freedom days tomorrow, but we're getting value beyond that for the services we get. It sounds, that's, he says it's a good deal.
7: Well, well, Toby's using some pretty uh, magical math there, and, and I can't do it in my spreadsheet. Uh, you know, we, uh, we ideally we do get what we pay for. Indeed, uh, that's uh, that's the plan. Uh, the question here isn't whether uh, we're getting a good deal. A lot of us might think it's a fine deal. Uh, uh, many others among us uh, might think uh, we don't need to buy so much of it. You know, for instance, uh, in Alberta and a few other provinces, tax freedom day comes a lot earlier. In uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, tax freedom day comes a lot later. These are uh, these are uh, democratic choices that uh, that people make.
1: Do you think, what do you think yourself? I mean, do you think taxes are too high in Canada, Finn? Uh, I find
7: them pretty high. When you compare uh, personal income taxes uh, across jurisdictions, uh, especially the, the degree of progressivity of the system, in other words, when you're going from a low income to a medium, uh, you know, middle class income, how much more in tax you pay, it, uh, it can be kind of jolting uh people in scandinavian countries that's uh, that's my background would uh, generally be comfortable with that sort of rate uh, but on the other hand they have very different uh very different democracies or very different uh, polities as well to-
1: toby so it, uh, what do you what do you think uh, do you think maybe you wait, think wait, taxes are too wait, wait, too yeah, low no 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 that's
6: good question i think this is what you need to get to because a lot of stuff can be lost in the averages there right um I would say that our tax system has become more regressive in the past few days. I mean, partly because uh, people pushed for tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy, and that includes the Fraser Institute. And I think that that's part of the part of what this report comes out and says. And you can do different calculations, but one calculation that was done found that the top one percent pays a lower overall rate of tax for all taxes of their income than all other income groups, including the poorest ones. The federal corporate e- income tax rate was cut in half over the past two decades. That's in half. And so now as a result, I mean, Finn might say it's a, it, it's a fiction, but there are about $600 billion in cash surpluses that they have made part because their profits have been so high and they're not investing back in the economy. What,
1: what would you uh, do? The
6: vast, vast to- majority of Canadians agree that it's too easy for wealthy corporations to avoid their tax responsibilities. And an even higher share of CRA tax professionals, these are the people the taxes, 90%. uh, Agree. It's too easy for them to avoid taxes. So the focus of our organization is to try and get the wealthy and corporations to pay higher taxes.
1: Right. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Make the wealthy. So
6: easier for. Yeah.
1: Make the wealthy pay more. We just got two minutes left. Finn, what do you say to that? Well,
7: I think uh, Toby has a point that uh, that a broad-based tax system with uh, with less leakage uh, makes it possible for uh, for governments to raise their revenue to do the things we want them to do at lower tax rates. So, yeah, the uh, there are a lot of programs that we have in place federally and provincially uh, that uh, that reward businesses for doing things that are politically preferred. Uh, it would be great to get rid of some of those. Uh, so. That we could collect uh, more tax revenue across the board and uh, more evenly, and uh, and lower overall tax rates. So I, you know, where I think we're in pretty strong agreement on that front, uh, as to the share of uh, income and taxes paid by our high income earners. Uh, it, you'd be pretty hard pressed to show that it's a low rate or a lower rate than other folks. On the margin, uh, we do have some very high tax rates that affect low income people and middle income class families as they lose their benefits. Uh, but uh, the, the proportion of taxes that our high-income earners pay is a far higher share uh, than uh, the share of uh, national income that they earn. You know, it's uh, okay. if we didn't have high-income people to pay taxes, we'd be in a
1: pretty sorry state. Thirty seconds, Toby, if you want to respond to that. Well, I'm
6: uh, I'm uh, shocked, but also pleased to to hear that uh, Nelson is, <laughs> is agreed with this. In some areas, the calculations of who pays the top. The top amount i mean uh, uh, uh it depends what you're including in that but i but i think most people would agree that uh, that, that they and we've seen this in terms of increasing inequality that that, 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 that the wealthy that the top incomes and uh, corporations have in particular been able to avoid taxes uh um okay. both through domestic loopholes and also internationally and we're uh, fighting hard to try and close some of that
1: thanks to both of you yeah. for coming on today Anytime time, Mike, and, uh, go Raptors. Appreciate it, yeah, go Raptors. <laughs> Finn Poshman is with the Fraser Institute. Toby Sanger is with Canadians for Tax Fairness, talking about Tax Freedom Day in Canada. Are Canadian municipalities sitting ducks for cyber terrorists? That's what the mayor of Stratford, Ontario, thinks. This is the latest Canadian municipality to be targeted by an online ransom attack now here's the way this works you will have hackers could break into a computer system maybe lock up some IT data lock people out of their own computer systems and then you know what happens next they demand a ransom they want money they want cash in order for to them for you to release the information back to the targeted uh, group Stratford Ontario Uh, The mayor there saying that they're one of the latest communities to get attacked like this. He is sending out a warning to other municipalities and mayors across the whole country that municipalities better get ready for more of this. These online extortionists are getting bolder and smarter by the day. Let's check in with a real expert on this now, Professor Tom Keenan. He is a cybercrime expert at the University of Calgary. He's the author of the best-selling book, Techno Creep. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Tom. Good afternoon. Funnily enough, I'm at a conference in New
3: York that the mayor of Stratford usually attends, but I guess maybe he's got other things on his mind.
1: Yeah, he seems pretty busy working with the police there in Stratford to figure out just how bad this attack is on their, uh, their computer servers. I know that this one doesn't surprise you, Tom, because you've seen a lot of this in the past. Well, we certainly have.
3: I mean, there was a hospital down in Los Angeles that had you know, paid a ransom because if the bad guys lock up your data and you don't have a good backup copy of it, you're kind of stuck. I've even had you know, corporations call me up and say, well, what are we going to do? And the answer is, if you had a time machine, you'd go back and back up all your data. And maybe you should pay, maybe you shouldn't.
1: The police say don't pay, but I do know people who have paid, and uh, it's an individual decision, I suppose. How does this work? How do these hackers get into the system, and then what do they do to lock up this information? Usually, somebody did something bad. You got an employee
3: who's a little bit bored, maybe in a hospital, and they, type, they go to a website that they shouldn't go to, or they click on an attachment on an email. There's a million ways that somebody's computer can get infected. And because the computers are all networked, that infection can spread. And sooner or later, probably sooner, the bad guys are in there, they've got your system, and the IT manager gets an email, and the email says, you know, we own you. We actually are in control of your system, so uh, pay up or you can't have your data back. Sometimes they actually encrypt your data. Sometimes they just pretend to encrypt your data.
1: That's good enough for some people to pay. Okay, and quite often, I know they will make the demand for Bitcoin, right? They want Bitcoin so that can't the money can't be traced if you if someone does yeah. decide to pay up Bitcoin
3: is virtually untraceable. There are some police techniques where they try to find it out, but the reality is it's pretty anonymous, and that is the currency choice because after all, if you sent them a check or gave them a credit card, there would be a way to follow the money so it's typically. Uh, the uh, way that the bank money, and I've seen everything from five hundred to fifty thousand dollars,
1: depending on what they think they can get. Okay, you're you're breaking up just a little bit on your cell phone there, Tom. I know you. I know we were worried about you being in a in a cell phone uh, dead zone there. I don't know if, if if there's any way you can move around or something. To yeah, I, I
3: just bit. moved outside, so now you have to put up with the midtown Manhattan noise. But oh, that's is okay. that better?
1: Yeah, I think that is better. Let me let me ask you this: Some people might wonder why the heck would anybody actually Actually, pay these people. You know, I mean. But on the other hand, if they've locked up your data and you have some confidence that you're going to get back into your system, I guess that's when people start doing the math in their own heads and wondering if if it might be worth it paying these paying these extortionists. Didn't this happen at the University of Calgary a while ago?
3: Yeah, I can't I I can't talk about the University of Calgary except what's on the public record, which is there was a ransom attack. The university, it's documented, paid $20,000. That's all I'll say about that. But let me give you the answer to your question. All right. Let's say you're a hospital. Let's say you're a hospital, and the bad guy emails you, and maybe he's very sophisticated. So instead of saying, I've locked up your data, he says, I know that you have a Picker X-ray machine, and it has flaws in it. So I'm going to just kill a patient every day until you Whoa. pay me this ransom. So, so the bad guys can get into what we call the Internet of Things so that's even worse than getting in your data. Now they're controlling your machines. They, if you're a city, they could control your sewage system. So the possibilities are endless, and the only answer is awareness. So you've got to make sure that your employees know
1: that there's no Saudi prince who wants to give them $10 million. <laughs> Don't click on that email. Is there, is there any circumstances in your mind where it would be, make sense to pay these guys? Yes,
3: I do know a wine store in Calgary, and this is all public information. It was a month before Christmas. The bad guys only wanted $500 worth of Bitcoin. And the owner said, look, my customer list is on there. My supplier list is on there. It's a month before Christmas. Give me a break. He paid, and he said he's going to put it on his tax return as a business expense. But I got news for him. I don't think the CRA will allow that as an expense.
1: (laughs) Okay, what is your advice to municipalities corporations anybody really and how to how to prevent uh, pre- uh, protect themselves Everybody, from anything it's really easy to back give your data there are automated ways it used
3: to be a big pain in the neck now there are services that will do it for you for you know as low as $20 US a year there are IT consultants who can set it up So it's really inexcusable not to have your data backed up, particularly if you're a small, medium-sized business. I mean, how much data do you have after all? You could fit it probably on a USB key. And how often do you back up your data? Well, how much can you afford to lose, right? If you back it up once a month, you might lose up to 29 days' worth of data. So come up with a backup strategy, and then educate your employees. Make sure that they know, particularly on their work computer, that there is no Saudi prince out there. There is no lottery that they didn't enter that they've suddenly won. And by the way, they probably shouldn't be going to those sketchy porn websites at work anyway.
1: (laughs) Okay. The mayor of Stratford, Tom, is sounding the alarm on this for other municipalities across the country. He thinks that they're sitting ducks for these kind of attacks and... People better wake up to this. Do you, do you think this could get worse? And do you agree with the mayor that Canadian municipalities are are un, are not adequately protected on this?
3: I I do. I know Dan Matheson, and he cited other Ontario towns like Wasaga Beach that have had the same problem. It's particularly a problem in the smaller towns, right? Because mm-hmm. they don't have you know the kind of IT department sophistication maybe as a big city like Vancouver. So everybody should be thinking about their backup and. Mm-hmm. What Dan is also calling for is a coordinated police response. The problem is, a lot of times you call the police and you get your own Joe officer who doesn't know much about cybercrime. So increasingly, police departments are uh, starting up special cybercrime units. Vancouver certainly has one. Calgary has one. RCMP have one. So you need to talk to the right people. If you're in this situation, get a hold of the right police people and don't let them just say, well, we'll take a report. That's not good enough.
1: They should give you some help. That's what we pay our taxes for. Tom, thanks for taking the time today. I know you're busy there in New York City. Thank you. Okay, Mike. Take care. Appreciate it a lot. That is Tom Keenan. He's a cybercrime expert at the University of Calgary. His best-selling book is Techno Creep.
3: Planting legs are deployed.
0: Again, through the
4: fog, but at least a little bit more clearly this time. Falcon 9 has landed that landing zone one back at Vandenberg Air Force
1: Base. All right. That was the sound yesterday of three Canadian satellites uh, being successfully launched into orbit to kick off a new mission to survey Canada's north. The Falcon 9 rocket took off from the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California a few minutes after takeoff. SpaceX. SpaceX. Yeah, that's uh, Elon Musk's uh, space uh, company. They confirmed in a tweet that the first stage landed successfully on a landing pad northwest of Los Angeles. It's all part of launching new Canadian satellites. Let's check in now with Kat Kelly, an astronomer at the H.R. McMillan Space Center, about this one. Hi, Kat. Hi. Thanks very much for coming on. Can you tell me about these satellites and uh, this project called the Radarsat satellites, right?
8: Yeah, for sure. So there's there's three of them. Um, and they're all going to orbit around the Earth at set distances from one another. Um, What that allows is um, continuous monitoring of Canada's territory and the Arctic and also about 90% of the Earth's surface. Um, What we're going to do is we'll have pictures daily of Canada's territory and then maybe like four times a day we can take snapshots of other parts of the Earth and what's helpful for that is it means that we can do long-term tracking. We can see changes by having daily pictures. Um, we'll be able to observe changes over time.
1: Okay, how did the launch go? It, all, it sounded successful there in that short clip that we heard. Did it all go yeah. well?
8: Yeah, it went very, very smoothly. Um, SpaceX used a reusable rocket to send them up. So, yeah, really exciting
1: stuff. So the, the rocket goes up, launches the satellites, and then the rocket comes back down. That's right, yeah. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty incredible. So we have three satellites up in the air. Are they all operating the way they expected to operate so far?
8: Yeah, so I believe they they have certain, like an altitude to get to and then a distance between each other. And once they're stable, they'll just um, continue orbiting around the Earth and send us those pictures.
1: Okay, what are we expected to learn from these uh, new satellites?
8: So one of the really interesting things is that by taking pictures and sort of surveillance of, the surface of the earth, we can track for changes. So things like, this is really going to help us with researching climate change, um, seeing how the land changes, so whether that's um, because of human activity, or agriculture, or anything like that, forestry, then we can monitor these ecosystems and see how they change over time. Um, it's also, there is some maritime surveillance, so they can actually track ships, um, which will help us uh, things like natural disasters or maybe emergencies out at sea—they'll be able to help with response and recovery for disasters like that as well.
1: Okay, this is a 1.2 billion dollar uh, program. Um, we already had satellites up there, though, right? I mean, why did we need new ones? And are, are these? How are these ones different from the ones we already had up there?
8: Yeah, so there was one. There's actually one still up there called RadarSat Two, um, and so that can offer some images, but um, it doesn't have the recognition software for ships. So that that maritime observation isn't available with Radarsat 2. And it doesn't cover as much of the Earth as this new satellite does. Um, So satellites have a lifetime of about seven years, or these ones in particular. And so what's important is to, as we learn from something like Radarsat, the previous one, what we need. And as technology like AI and computer chips improve, then, and also our demands for information, right? We, we really want to start focusing on things like climate change and monitoring that. Um, so our demands have changed. And so the next generation satellite has been demanded of us. And uh, that's what we've sent up.
1: Okay, pretty exciting uh, development for, for Canada. Are, is this like Canadian technology? Or do we got we to gotta buy all these satellites from someone else? Or can we build this stuff ourselves?
8: Yeah, no, this is Canadian technology. So MDA is um, one of the largest companies that helped to build, like with the design, the construction, the testing. Most of it was done in Quebec, uh, Winnipeg, and some other areas. But, I mean, there's MDA all over the country. Um, and so in the end, I think maybe roughly about 300 people would have worked just on constructing these satellites. So um, all about most of the Canadian provinces would have played a role in the project.
1: Very exciting stuff. When do we uh, start expecting to get information from these satellites and actually putting it to use?
8: Um, So I think we are going to be looking at maybe a few weeks for things to, uh, to get like those regular images. But I presume that the Canadian Space Agency will be putting the first image that they get on their website very soon. So you can keep an eye out for that.
1: Kat, thanks for coming on and telling us about it. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Kat Kelly, astronomer with the H.R. McMillan Space Center on the successful launch yesterday of three new Canadian satellites using the SpaceX rocket that went uh, pretty much without, uh, off without a hitch uh, yesterday.